Hi, everyone, and welcome to our 10th episode of T1 Talks. This is a podcast where we aim to share our experiences living with type 1 diabetes to build a sense of community for diabetics, both type 1 and 2. We want to dispel any myths about what it means to be a type 1 and increase diabetic awareness through our stories. I'm Gianna, a type 1 diabetic of 14 years and a recent graduate of the College of New Jersey. And I'm Victoria. I'm a medical student from Saskatchewan, Canada, and I was just diagnosed with type 1 diabetes in March of this year. And today we're going to be breaking down some advice for newly diagnosed diabetics. And so I know that we've been wanting to make this episode since we started. It's something I think that affects every diabetic who's diagnosed now or recently. And I think it's big for me because when I was first diagnosed, I realized how many gaps there were in sort of my diabetic education. And especially because I presented without real symptoms at the time, or I wasn't in crisis, I didn't have any inpatient services. It wasn't like Eugiana where I was sent to the hospital. I just sort of had my family doctor do some tests and sort of start my treatment. And now I'm waiting to see an endocrinologist. And so while I have seen some, like I've seen a diabetic educator and some different professionals, I still feel like there's a lot of information that wasn't shared with me. And I also feel like for anyone, even And if you're in hospital receiving that information, as soon as I heard those words, you are diabetic, my brain totally shut down. Yeah, well, I really can imagine hearing those words right in the middle of learning about all of the complications of diabetes, hearing the judgment from your classmates on what they think of the condition, learning about people who have suffered from it. I think that this has the ability to make a scary situation 10 times scarier. That on top of the fact that you don't even have an endo. So most of this you've been handling on your own. And yeah, you've been doing a great job of it, but... I don't think everyone can handle it as well as you. And I'm also sure it hasn't been easy for you to deal with. Definitely. And I think I do lack that validation from that certified professional, essentially. Even though I know that an endocrinologist isn't the end-all be-all to diabetic management, obviously. But I think even now and then for sure, I was still hoping that I wasn't actually a diabetic for a long time. And I know in episode one, we talked about sort of that day where I saw that high blood sugar and I was pretty sure things were wrong. And then a week later, after I'd already been finger pricking, I knew absolutely something was wrong, but I still was hoping that things were okay. And my doctor mentioned, maybe it's nothing, maybe it's just a a fluke. I was young and I was healthy and it could be something else, but it wasn't obviously. And essentially it took like two weeks for me to get my blood work and confirm that I was diabetic, but I still didn't know if I was type one or type two diabetic, which made everything really confusing for me. But I think sort of informs this episode in terms of us giving advice to a newly diagnosed diabetic. It's shocking to me just how many people can relate to the issue of being misdiagnosed as an adult today. Because back when I was diagnosed in 2006, I don't know if it's just because I wasn't in contact with many other diabetics or because there were genuinely a lot less adults being diagnosed with type 1 at the time. But I felt like there was a lot less confusion about being type 1 and being type 2. Totally. And I think that that actually brings up a really good point. I think that a lot of people were misdiagnosed at that point where it was sort of if you're diagnosed after 30 or 35 or 40 or whatever the cutoff was, you're type 2. And you're either insulin dependent type 2 or you're not insulin dependent type 2. And I think even for myself, I would have been treated as type 2 for longer had I not advocated for myself and had the Libre sensor, the continuous glucose monitor and that data to sort of back up my theories, which a lot of people don't have access to, especially if they're diagnosed as a type 2 diabetic. And so I think that that misdiagnosis is common. But when we look at both type 1 and type 2, they're becoming more and more common together. 
So like type one diabetes, the rate is increasing at the same, or the incidence is increasing at the same rate as type two diabetes. And it's important to talk about because there's sort of this idea that the treatments are super different between the two types and they're really different. And we'll talk about that a lot. But I think ultimately what I've found is that they're more similar than they are different. See, that actually surprises me that you'd say that. I feel like not many people would share that opinion with you. I would agree with that. I think it's maybe a little contentious. Sorry, friends who feel like it is. But I think whether you're diagnosed type 1 or type 2 or any type diabetic, whether you're gestational diabetes or one of the other kinds, there are always going to be some basics that are good to know. And these things include diet advice. They include exercise advice. They go beyond just like insulin regimens. And so I think in this episode, we hope to cover what we wished that we or like our support network had known when we were first diagnosed. And anyone will tell you whether they have type 1 diabetes or type 2 or any type of diabetes, we only do what we need to do to survive. And that can be really hard. And so it's really good to have support from others. And so this episode is really for everyone. Yeah, I definitely feel like whether you are diabetic yourself, or you just have one in your life that you want to be able to help support or just communicate with in general, I feel like you'll be able to find something from this episode to pull and use in your own life. I think the first piece of advice I will offer anyone, and it's what I had to do to get through that very first day, is to just take things one step at a time. And I say step because that can be as big or as small as you need it to be. And my very first night where I had my fast acting insulin, I had bought my insulin and I bought a bag of Doritos and I went home with that. And I was like, if I can get through this injection, I'm okay. And that was where I started. And obviously I've come a really long way with my pump and my CGM and everything. But I really think it's important to be okay with the fact that maybe tonight all you need to do is your one injection and move on from that and keep living your life. And then you can deal with it again next time instead of worrying about what's going to happen in a day or a week or a year or whatever. I totally agree with you. When I was younger, this was the one piece of advice I wish I had followed more. I was always taking in everyone's suggestions all at once. So it was, you need to improve your A1C. You need to test your sugars more. You need to eat better. You need to exercise. And when I'm hearing all these things at once, it's super overwhelming. And to be quite honest, I would try one thing, fail at it, and then give up for the rest of the week. What I should have been doing is setting these small actionable goals where I could take one step and maybe test my sugar once a day or once every other day and celebrate that and then move forward to testing twice a day or whatever it is, just something that acknowledged the fact that I was making progress rather than always striving for something that was not really realistic with where I was. To have an A1C of over 14 and constantly be thinking I need to get it down to somewhere near six or seven was just the worst feeling for me because I felt like I was never going to get there. And I do think it's super important for people to do this as newly diagnosed diabetics, because even if it takes a little bit of time, you're building these healthy habits rather than being like me, where sometimes now I still have that attitude of I can't be bothered. Yeah. And I think that that brings up a super good point about sort of needing to involve support people, include people like doctors in sort of how information is presented to patients. I think it's really, really important to break things down and prioritize things. Unfortunately, and this will lead into my next piece of advice, with diabetes, you can live a normal life. And it never feels like this when you're first diagnosed. And that's because medical advice specifically, at least in my experience, my personal experience, the medical advice prioritized two things. It prioritized my immediate health by wanting to avoid lows, and it prioritized my high sugars. 
And so we talked about needing to use insulin and having those high sugars, but also being really conservative with how that insulin was delivered so that I wasn't going to have lows. But unfortunately, what this led to was a lot of rigidity that wasn't okay for me because I consider myself a pretty decent person when it comes to like, I just need to live my life how I live it. I need to have control over it. I can't be living a regimented eating breakfast at eight in the morning and then lunch at eight or lunch at noon and dinner at five. That doesn't work for me. And that was really what they wanted me to do with my insulin. And I know even looking at Facebook, people still feel that way where it's like, when will I get my normal life back? And I think that there's good reason why doctors prioritize your immediate health over sort of those freedoms in the short term. But I think it's good to know that you will get those things back. You will start being able to carb count and dose your insulin based on what you're eating and not having such a strict schedule of everything, including doctor's appointments. I'll be interested to see what my doctor's appointments look like when I'm seeing an endocrinologist, but I know a lot of people see your endocrinologist like every two weeks for that first little while getting things sorted and often are talking like I was talking to my nurse educator every week about my insulin doses. And so I think it's good to know that when you're feeling like you can't live your normal life in those first few weeks or months, it's good to know that it's more about not overwhelming you with all of those details of carb counting and how to be safe with insulin. And I think that that's good, but also a good conversation to have with your doctor, because for me, it was impossible. I started carb counting right away because I couldn't handle that one to two units with dinner, one to two units with breakfast. Like, no, that didn't work for me. Yeah, I don't know how many times I can stress that your diabetes is going to overwhelm you in the beginning. It's going to feel like a lot and it's going to feel like it's taking away part of your life. But it is definitely possible to live a quote unquote normal life with diabetes. What's not possible is to live this normal life if you're choosing to ignore your diabetes, pretend it's not there, make an active decision every day to not take care of yourself. It becomes normal when you integrate it into your lifestyle and learn how to manage it in the best way possible. It's never going to be perfect. I've never met someone who's told me every day with diabetes is totally fine. It blends in with the day. But I've definitely met people where it's second nature to them and they're living a happy life because of it. Definitely. Diabetes is something that is so, it is manageable, but you can't ignore it. It's not ignorable. And it's not, even though it is manageable, I think that it's a lot more complicated to manage than people sort of think it might be sometimes. For sure. There are so many things that go into managing diabetes and there's a lot that you figure out along the way. Something that I wish I had taken note of is actually just how many things are going to affect your blood sugar levels. This is one of those things that when I was diagnosed, I thought it was pretty black and white. I knew that eating would make my blood sugar rise and I always thought that exercise would make my blood sugar drop, but I didn't realize that there were so many things that could play into it. For example, exercise doesn't always just make your sugar drop. It can also make your sugar rise. And then there's things like sleep, sickness, periods, sex, stress. These things all affect your blood sugar. And I think it can be super beneficial in the beginning to record how your sugars react to certain things. Then you can pick up on these patterns early and be really proactive and adjust accordingly in the future. So maybe if you know you're going to go hiking, you know how to prepare your basal rate, you know what to bring. It's just a little thing that helps you be more ready when you're going into an activity. And it also can just help take away some of that self-blame when you realize, hey, it's totally normal for my sugar to be a little wacky right now. I'm doing X thing and this is okay. I would definitely say when you're recording these kind of things, keep in mind, nobody's perfect. And even if you write down every single pattern, you'll still notice that your sugar just doesn't sync up some days. 
But that's just what diabetes is. It's never going to be something that's so concrete. Totally. And I think recording things is so important. And then it's so helpful to have a Dexcom or continuous glucose monitor, or even just be checking your sugars regularly. So like every hour, if you can, like having that much data is so helpful when you're trying to look for those trends. And to also just understand my sugars run higher some days because of my cycle, or like my sugars are lower some days because I'm home all day and I'm not doing anything, or I'm walking all day and doing something. So like it really depends on a lot and some of it is predictable and some of it isn't. And I know for me, that's something that people who are involved in my diabetes management, so people who I share my sugars with and share my day with, they really start to understand quite quickly. They shift from, oh, well, have you tried this? Or like, oh, well, shouldn't you just try this? Like have a juice before you go on your walk. And it's like, I've tried that actually. I need to do something differently. And so I think it sort of just builds into you learn way more about you as a person if you keep track of those things and even just keeping track of those things with my Dexcom data I feel like I can predict better not perfectly like you say you know how is this food gonna affect me or how is this walk gonna affect me or how do I need to change my morning bolus so that I can go for a walk things like that Yeah. And what we always say, every diabetic is unique. So what affects my body in one way might not affect your body in the same way. This is just something that might help you feel more in control of your diabetes. And I do think we have to throw that caveat into every piece of advice that we're giving in this episode is like the best piece of advice that we can give any newly diagnosed diabetic is to find out what works best for you. And so we're just giving sort of ideas of things that might be worth looking into. There are no hard and fast rules. Some things make people's sugars go up and other people's sugars drop. And that's just reality. Something else that I think varies a ton between people is how the insulin works, how quickly it works, sort of how long it works for, and then obviously how much you need to cover your carbs and cover your high sugars. So if you're newly diagnosed, you're usually started on two types of insulin. And that's like a fast acting insulin and a long acting insulin. And these are multiple daily injections or MDI, which we talk about a lot because that's what I was on initially when I was diagnosed. No matter what, each of the fast-acting insulins have slightly different profiles, but they typically work within an hour, usually like start working around 30 minutes, and then they peak around an hour and they work for about three or four or five hours. And for me personally, like I notice insulin is slow to work. So like it takes a long time for it to really start kicking in. And then well, a long time, it takes about 45 minutes for it to really start kicking in. And then it can kick my sugars down like five hours later, if I'm not careful, depending on what I've eaten. So it definitely lasts in my body for a long time. And again, these are things that you just learn over time by watching your sugars and testing it out. I calculated my own insulin sensitivity So that's how much does my sugar drop with one unit of insulin by literally just giving myself a unit of insulin and watching what my sugars did for four hours. So some of those things are sort of just like experiments that you can do at home as long as you're at a safe level to start with. And then you can get an idea for how sensitive to insulin and things like that you are. Definitely. Honestly, I had always thought that all types of insulin worked in the same way. So I was shocked when I switched from Novolog to Umalog and I noticed such a difference in how my body took to the insulin. 
I've also taken insulin that's been overheated thinking that was okay, even though insulin is supposed to be refrigerated. And my body did not respond well to that either. So I think it's definitely a good idea, especially in the beginning stages of your diabetes, to sit down with your endocrinologist, go over your specific type of insulin, how it works, put in some time and research to see if you're getting the insulin that's best for you and also just how to take care of that insulin in general. And then maybe take it one step further later on, learning how to use that insulin to your advantage. So for example, when I met Victoria and she introduced me to extended boluses, uh, since I use an insulin pump, I have the option of extended bolus where I can program specific percentages of insulin to go into my body at certain times. So let's say I want to take five units, but I only want 50% of that dosage now and I want the rest in an hour, I can do that. And I found this incredibly helpful when my sugar's low, but I'm eating a full meal. It helps me take some of the insulin to compensate for the carbs that are hitting me right away, but it also pushes some to later so I can compensate for my low. I've used it a few times now and it's super helpful. I'm not carb counting, so I'm not calculating this in any kind of exact way, but I've definitely been happy to put this feature to use because I've always looked at it on my pump and said, this is kind of just an unnecessary feature. It's just another thing to make the pump a little more confusing. But now that I'm implementing it, I see how useful it can be. So maybe take some time to sit down, play around with those extra features and find out what they can really do for you. I love that. But I also think you bring up a really good point, which is that everything that we buy is sold to us, right? And so I think it's a good, like, it's always good to question, is this actually something that I need? Or is this actually something that's going to improve my management? And like, for me, I haven't found the extended bolus helpful, because I'm still running into lows when I eat or after I eat. And so I just can't imagine trying to add something onto my management right now. But like, I'm so excited that it's working for you. And I do see it being helpful for me in the future. So I'm really glad to hear that. That's frustrating. I hope you're able to get some use out of it in the future. But speaking of things that aren't exactly for everybody. I grew up constantly being told, get a pump, get a pump, get a pump. And then once I got a little bit older, I was told, get a CGM, get a CGM, get a CGM. And I just want to stress to people, don't ever feel like you need to throw away your needles and pens and switch to a pump or switch from a meter to a continuous glucose monitor just because everyone is telling you it's better for you. Outside of the whole financial situation and things you can and can't afford, all diabetics react differently to diabetic technology. So it's best to switch when you feel comfortable and you feel like it's something that's truly going to benefit you. If you find you're that person that's testing all the time with a glucose meter, it's become a habitual thing for you, or maybe you're someone who doesn't like to wear external pieces of something on their body, then maybe a pump and a CGM aren't for you. You're the diabetic. This is your decision to make. So never let other people make you feel bad about whatever kind of technology you're using. Find what works for you and use that. Totally. I think that lots of people make the decision to use or not use different technology totally based on personal preferences. I know for me, it was really important to get on a pump as soon as I could. And that just made sense for me. Whereas I think pens work better for a lot of people. And I can see a lot of benefit in just using pens or like MDI. So I totally get the appeal of both. You can have a really invisible illness if you're like, if you have your Dexcom on your stomach and are just doing MDI, nobody really needs to see it. And I think that that's really valuable for a lot of people or whatever your reason. I don't think it matters. So I think that moving forward, like our next advice is sort of a bit more practical around daily things that we have to do. And something that I think is important that we talk about is that carbs are not the devil, but carbs are super important. And so it's sort of like when we were talking about diabetes management, where obviously it's really important to manage your diabetes and it is manageable, but you can't ignore it. It's the same with carbs. And so 
you have to be able to count carbs or at least estimate carbs like what you do, Gianna, is honestly pretty decent, but they don't have to be avoided. And I think that that's something that I really had in my head, especially when I was thinking that I might be a type 2 diabetic, is that I need to cut back on carbs. I need to stop eating carbs because that's the best thing to do. But for me personally, that was never the best thing to do. I feel really yucky when I'm not eating carbs. And so I needed to just become more, and obviously with insulin, like I needed to become more aware of my carbs and not start avoiding carbs because I just really feel yucky. I can't explain it. But when we look at carb counting, it's tough because I think there's sort of all of these different, it's not just the carbs themselves, but it's also the type of carbs you're eating. It's the time of day you're eating them at. It's how recently you gave your last insulin dose. There's sort of obviously a lot that goes into it. And for me, I'm a big fan of normal eating. So normal eating is just like what normal people would do. It's just like, don't worry about food, just live your life and eat food to fill yourself up. And I find that super difficult with diabetes because it's like, I can't just eat what I feel like eating. I need to be paying attention to my sugars and make decisions based on that. And I think that that can be really challenging for a lot of diabetics and is super challenging. Oh my gosh, I cannot even tell you guys how many people I've seen online trying to force other people into their diets, telling diabetics that they can't eat carbs if they want to live a long life, trying to force people into one type of lifestyle. It's ridiculous. I can tell you firsthand, I've had days where I've ate really, really terribly and had great sugars. It's totally possible. And because of that, I like to tell people, if you can manage your diabetes while eating a specific junk food, then you shouldn't have to give it up because of your diabetes. Maybe you should give it up because of other health problems. I mean, that's something you have to figure out. But I'm just saying diabetes isn't a reason that you should be giving up a certain food. So I just don't really feel comfortable with the idea of telling someone that they're going to die or suffer from eating a specific thing. I think you'll find what works for you and what doesn't. Maybe some things you find always raise your sugar and you don't want to eat them. That's totally cool. But don't feel like you need to change every single thing you're eating just because of your diabetes. I've never met someone in my life that has had to do that. Totally. And I think that that's a really good thing to bring up is just that you know you best and that that's super important in terms of when you're trying to make any changes or when you're looking at sort of how to make things better. The best advice I would give somebody is just find something that works well for you and then build on it from there. Again, just take things in small steps. Yeah, and I definitely wouldn't say experimenting is a bad thing. I know that about three years ago before I moved to Florida, I was seeing a nutritionist for a little bit over that summer, and that was suggested by my endocrinologist. And while I was working with my nutritionist, I felt so healthy and so happy. I recorded a lot of my foods at the time, which did make me feel a little bit ashamed looking at that long list, but my nutritionist really helped me build on turning that shame into motivation, and I really started to see a bit of progress. I never realized the association between what I was eating and my moods and productivity as well, so that was another thing that I would say benefited me from this experience, but when I got back from Florida, the habits obviously hadn't stuck, but... I definitely would say during that time, we focused on eating in moderation, adding in extra exercise if I wanted to eat more, 
things like that that didn't involve cutting out all of my favorite foods, which is something that I personally didn't want to do. Exactly. And I think the diabetic educators and the dietitians that work with diabetics are really good at sort of helping us figure out what small things we can change to make those bigger differences. Definitely, this episode is never about discouraging people from seeking that sort of external help. I think that that's really important. Of course. So let's get real for a second about food. I would never have thought personally that I would be in such a necessarily obsessive place about my food intake. And for me, this is really, really hard. I don't like thinking about what I'm eating, how many carbs are in it, what time of day I'm eating, how much insulin I need for it. Like all of those things feed into my anxiety around food. They feed into my anxiety around things like weight. And if I can control things, I do. And I think that this is a real conversation to have because these things are way more common in diabetics. And something called diabulimia is a real phenomenon or a real condition that happens where diabetics will restrict insulin so that their sugars run high and they lose weight. So that's basically what was happening to me before I was diagnosed is I was just losing weight for really no good reason except that I was sick. And this is a way that people can sort of eat what they want and still lose weight. And on the flip side of that, what I experience is this fear of high blood sugars. And so instead of restricting my insulin, I find I'm often restricting my food or really controlling what I eat so that I avoid high high blood sugars. And it gives people the idea that they can control all of these things, right? And that just isn't reality. We need to be healthy first. And by being healthy, that means having healthy sugars and eating a healthy diet. That's my goal is to learn how to eat a healthy diet and avoid those scary high sugars. But I think that that pressure from external sources where you hear about the keto diet, especially, but also on the flip side of that, the mastering diabetes diet, which are essentially competing diets. They are both designed for diabetics, but one says high carb, low fat. The other one says high fat, low carb. And as you can imagine, that's extremely confusing. And I think that that's why it's really important to not stick to one of these diets that somebody suggests to not feel like there is a right way to do it and to really just do what we've been talking about, which is track your sugars, track what you're eating, track how you're feeling and learn from that and make decisions. Everything is an experiment with diabetes. It's the science experiment we never asked for. You never know what you're going to get. Something else that I really wish that I had known was what was actually important? What's the best thing I can do for my health as a newly diagnosed diabetic? And I think part of that is just like, you can't do everything all at once. So you have to sort of pick what's most important. I'm just going to butt in real quick and say, I don't know if anyone here has seen Disney's Frozen 2, but there's a song in the movie and it's called The Next Right Thing. And it's something that I always compare managing my diabetes to when I have since I first heard the song, because it's a song about feeling hopeless and wanting to give up, but pushing yourself to continue on and just do the literal next right thing, really just the bare minimum of good you can do. And sometimes diabetes just really sucks and I feel burnt out and I genuinely don't want to take care of myself. But then I challenge myself to just do one small thing, test my sugar, take a dose of insulin, whatever's the next immediate step. And then I start to feel a little better. And then I move on to the next thing. I just think this song does a great job of summing up that whole process. And I really like the way it talks about avoiding looking at the big picture in a sense. Just do what you can do now. 
control what you can control that's right in front of you. And maybe it'll bring you a step closer to that ultimate goal, which for me as a diabetic is to live a long, healthy life. I love that. That's going to follow me through my clerkship now, Gianna. Every time I'm doing the next thing that I don't want to do, I'm just going to be singing that song in my head. It's perfect. It is perfect. No, and I think that that's really good advice. And again, like it just brings us back to taking things step by step and really just you don't need to do everything all at once. You just need to do one thing right now. That always looks different in every moment. But I think like my, I would say that the best thing that I did for me was reach out and gain community member support. Finding people in the type one community who have knowledge and kindness and are willing to sort of explain things or even just share their experience. I found that really, really helpful, especially because I was sort of left in the dark with respect to exactly how to manage type one diabetes. I got a lot of conflicting advice from different people. And like my knowledge in medicine is pretty rudimentary at this point because I don't have any patient experience except for my own. And so just looking at all of those things, it's important to, I think, find people who share those same experiences so that you, again, can sort of normalize things that are normal and also realize things that maybe aren't normal that you should talk to your doctor about. I say it every episode, but having a support system was so vital for me. I really enjoyed having people that could relate to what I was going through and I knew understood what I was talking about when I talked about certain feelings my diabetes gave me or being isolated because of my diabetes. It just really meant a lot to me and having people like you, Victoria, that know about the medical side of things has been really interesting for me as well because understanding the logic behind my diabetes was something that I never had until I met you and I find it not only super interesting but it makes me feel more validated in why certain things are happening. Other diabetics always just have something new to bring to the table and some of that information can be super useful to you. It's just nice to have someone that gets it. Totally. And I would completely agree. I think that my connections that I've made with you and other people in the community, obviously, especially you, like we talk a ton, um, but it really just helps me realize like what's normal and what's okay with diabetes. Because I do have this, like you said, my perspective is interesting, but it is very limited. Like I don't have a personal experience except for the last few months, but I do have this big medical experience (laughs) where I just have all this knowledge and some of it's great and some of it's not, but it's certainly been fun, I think, to have this interaction. And I would recommend everyone has a diabuddy, somebody that you can just check in with and talk about your sugars, send your Dexcoms to whatever. And for me, it wasn't until I joined these online platforms and support groups, things like that, that I really started to pull myself out of that hopeless mindset and start to take better care of myself. I noticed I was testing my sugar more. I love to share that with people and I love to compare in a fun way with other diabetics. I felt like so much less of a failure because I could finally see that I wasn't the only one struggling. It just makes you feel way less alone. Completely. And I know for me, I'm newly diagnosed. I'm pretty motivated in general. And so like for me, I haven't experienced burnout yet, but like fear of burnout is so real. I worry that I will just succumb to burnout and just nothing will be okay ever again. And I know for me, again, like coming back to it is like reaching out to community people, seeing people on Instagram who face burnout in different ways. 
has been really helpful for me to see that there is something on the other side of burnout, right? And again, like Gianna talking to you, like you're a really good example of seeing somebody sort of move through stages of managing their diabetes, which is really, really hard to do. And like kudos to you for the improvements that you're making. It's fantastic. Thank you. I'm trying. But I think it's important that we do like share some tips for when you do face burnout, because it's something that I would say every or almost every diabetic faces through their lives. A hundred percent. And I think it's extremely important for us to cover that in this episode specifically, because I think it hits new diabetics hard and fast. I mean, I think it hits diabetics in general hard and fast, but I've seen a lot of newly diagnosed diabetics asking about how to deal with this burnout and how to move past it. The first thing that I would say for anybody facing burnout is to make sure that you work to find a good pace with your doctor. Whether this is initially, like for me, this was all when I was first diagnosed. I didn't want to go too slowly with my management, but I didn't want to go too fast. And it was really important for me to find a good pace with my doctor, which again, we talked about a lot in the first episode, but that meant making sure that I advocated for myself with my doctor telling him like, you know, I'm not going to stop drinking lattes, but I will take insulin, you know, like some things like this. But also I was given sort of this recommendation on how to adjust my insulin and I was impatient. So I adjusted it faster so that I could get into a normal range faster. And I will tell you it was way too fast. And so sometimes you need to work with your doctor and sort of listen to their rationale because they do have a good reason for why they're recommending what they're recommending. And I wasn't unsafe getting myself into a good range. I wasn't facing lows. I just felt really yucky. And it was purely based on impatience and nothing else. And so I think it's good to sort of recognize what is a me problem and what is actually like diabetes management, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think so. Something that I found works for me when it comes to burnout is setting up boundaries. So I found that burnout was happening to me when I was pushing myself past the line. I didn't really want to overstep, but I felt like I had to. Something that I always say for people dealing with chronic conditions is just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. So please don't feel this need to constantly prove yourself just because you have something like diabetes or whatever condition or illness you might have. You're still a person and you're going to need a break sometimes. I like to make it clear now to myself and to others what I will and will not do. So I set these lines that I don't cross, like if my sugar's low for X amount of time, that I need to step off the floor at my job. Or if I was in class and I started to feel sick, I would step out of the room. There were these things that I knew I had to do for myself if I wanted to be okay and deal with things before they got too far and I didn't want to deal with them anymore. And I know that this wouldn't work for everyone because not everyone is comfortable sharing their diabetes with others, but I think it can be really useful to set those boundaries for yourself because it helps you check yourself before you end up feeling exhausted and drained 24-7. I mean, setting boundaries for yourself is... (laughs) a continuous learning journey. And I know like that's something that I'm going to have to work on really hard this year. And you guys will hear a lot about that because in clerkship, I'm going to be dealing with the priorities of patients over the priorities of my own health. And that's obviously hard to do. Most doctors do not need to make that decision. Most doctors can just work their day and, and not all doctors, of course, but most doctors can just work their day normally, eat lunch when they can, go pee once a day and their day goes on. And so be being somebody who has to form those boundaries, I'm already sort of going counterculture and then also asking for sort of extra exceptions. But ultimately, you're right, right? We have to look after ourselves first. I'm a person before I'm a doctor. And so that's always the case because I can't be a doctor without being a person. You just have to make those boundaries, like you said, with yourself 
as well as with other people. Exactly. And I think it helps hold you accountable when you either have them written down in front of you or you keep repeating them to yourself. Something that keeps you from pushing them aside or forgetting about them and putting yourself back in that situation of constantly overstepping yourself. Totally. Self-talk is a winner, right? Being able to just rationalize with yourself like, no, this is the right choice. You can always blame me. Victoria said I should be looking after myself. I'm almost a doctor. (laughs) I'll definitely come back and blame you. Don't worry. (laughs) And so I know something else that contributes to how exhausting I find diabetes, which is sort of burnout, but just like it's the distress part of the burnout. So something that really bothers me and still bugs me, but less so with the Dexcom, how do I not die with diabetes, especially when I'm sleeping? And this is something that worries me every night. And I know it's something that worries every diabetic parent to death is what if you sleep through your alarms? And I know, Gianna, for you, your alarms don't wake you up. For me, and obviously you and I can't share our data because Dexcom doesn't have international data sharing yet. But I think that having people who can wake you up and and having those security things is really important. But even with all of that, I still worry. Yeah, well, I think this is one of those things that is difficult no matter where you are in your diabetic journey. I think even if you're really good at taking care of your diabetes, this is still a fear that you might have. And it's something that I'm still struggling with. So it's difficult for me to give advice on. But something that I have found that helps with those late night lows is if I have a friend or a family member that can stay up with me and keep me engaged in a conversation, distract from the fact that I have to wait at least 15 minutes, probably more for my sugar to come up. Just something that stops me from feeling so tired that I just say, screw it and go to bed. Seriously, I've never been so grateful for my friend having a newborn because she's always awake in the middle of the night and we do talk a lot where it's like, I'm just awake and she's just awake and we get to talk. That sounds so nice. Well, not for her, but you know. (laughs) Same with all my friends who are going to be on call. They're just going to get texts from me, be like, hey, we're awake together. (laughs) Yay us. (laughs) So I think we're going to finish off this with a few pieces of advice for people. One thing that I think definitely doesn't get talked about enough, and we have touched on a little bit, but never officially, is how difficult hormonal changes are for all of my female friends who are diagnosed. So hormonal changes are a problem for everyone who's diagnosed, but men typically go on like a 24-hour hormone cycle, and women are on a 28- or 30-day hormone cycle. So obviously that's different. We are also on a 24-hour hormone cycle. We just have this extra one to worry about. And what this ends up doing for most women is it causes sort of these two peaks to happen when your hormones really fluctuate. So the first one happens when you're ovulating, and then about two weeks later, the next one happens right before your period, and then when you're actually having your period. And this is obviously super challenging because that means that every month I change my basal doses essentially four times to cover for those different days. And usually what this means is when I'm ovulating, I increase my insulin dose. And then right before I start my period, I increase my dose again. But then as soon as I start, I have to drop it again. It's super annoying. And I haven't had a ton of practice yet because it's every month, but it is something that I know a lot of women with diabetes face. And it's sort of this thing that isn't talked about enough because we're afraid of talking about periods, but it's something that half of the people with type one diabetes deal with, or a little less, I guess, if kids and whatever, but 
You know what I mean? A lot of us deal with this and it's really frustrating and it's something that you do need to just sort of work through. And again, like learn what happens in those days of your cycle to figure out what your best bet is for insulin dosing. I've read a lot about women struggling with this online, but I have yet to experience it myself. I'm not sure if this is just because my diabetes is poorly managed and has been for a while. So it's hard to notice those kind of patterns because obviously the numbers aren't going to stick out to me if that's what my usual is. But I feel like here would be a good opportunity for me to point out the essential for me to point out the benefits of recording those kind of patterns, because once you're able to identify something like that, you can work on it and make it better and more manageable for yourself. Exactly. And that's, again, it's never about judgment or shame or high sugars or bad food. It's always just about learning what's best for you. I had Dairy Queen last night. I had chicken strips, fries, ice cream. I messed up my bolus. I ended up low for some reason. Like normally I end up at like 13 after I eat all this, but last night I ended up low. So I think it's just like you can't predict everything and there's not going to be sort of this magical solution, but you can sort of learn to live a normal life with it, as we were saying. You totally can. And now one last thing we wanted to touch on is if you are struggling financially, please reach out to someone. Twitter is such a great platform for reaching out to people if you need extra supplies, especially insulin. But I would also suggest talking with your endocrinologist first, letting them know the issue, seeing if they have any free samples, extra supplies that people have maybe brought in. You can also reach out to people from T1 International, just send them an email, let them know your situation, and they will help you get what you need. You can also reach out to us and we can do whatever's in our power to help you. I just don't want anyone feeling this need to ration their supplies because they don't know that there's help out there because they feel ashamed that they can't afford their supplies. We covered an episode on costs. This is absurd and expensive. There's no judgment in asking for help, so please reach out. I love that advice is just ask for help when you need it and people will be able to give it to you. So just reach out when you need it, whether that's to us or to some other agency, people are around to help. And I think that there's a lot of power in the diabetic community, especially for if you're feeling sort of down in whatever way. Definitely. All you have to do is go on any social media platform and search hashtag insulin for all. That's the number four. And you'll realize just how many people are out there that want to help you and just how big this movement has really become in general. Totally. And so now it's the moment everyone has been waiting for, which is our weekly goals. And I joke about this because I honestly forgot about it until today. I've been really quite busy and I guess life happens. And I just based on looking into some sort of workout that I can do from home. But honestly, like looking back at it now, it's totally a goal that I need to put into my calendar so that I actually do it. Because as much as I love to go for walks, it's been 36 degrees Celsius here or 97 degrees Fahrenheit for our American listeners. Awful. Awful. So bad. (laughs) And so like indoor activities are a total must. And we do have like a gym at the hospital, but it's closed right now for COVID. And so I need to find some things that I can do at my house with what I have. So I need to do that. So I'm going to put in my calendar tonight and I'm going to actually do it this week. And how was your goal, Gianna? I actually did. I got my blood work done. I went yesterday. Yay. Thank you. It was actually funny because when I got there, she finds a vein in my arm, we get started, and the pinch was a little more than I was used to, or maybe it's just because I haven't been since December, but I kind of tense up, 
And me tensing up causes her to get scared and pull out the needle. And I'm the type of person that when I'm getting blood work, I can't look at it. I can't think about it. I face the other direction. And so it was just kind of funny because at this point we had to start over again. And in my head, I'm just like, oh man, this, I can't do this again. (laughs) Oh my God. Okay. So first of all, I am a medical student who has done some IVs or like blood draws, not IVs, sorry. And literally I can do it on someone else, but I still can't watch them when they do my blood work for my A1C. I have to look away. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I make sure I'm never looking when they're switching out those vials. I just stare right in the direction of the other wall wherever they're not working on my arm. Do you do the same thing when you're donating blood? Yep. It's the same process for me. (laughs) (laughs) Too funny. Okay. So then it fell out and she had to do it again on the other arm. Did she do better? She did. Yeah. It went a lot smoother with the second arm. And I think because I was laughing from it, it helped lighten the mood because that whole building was a bit tense. And obviously it's from what's going on in the world. Everyone's just a little bit on edge. So it really helped make it a bit more comfortable. Aw. Yeah. But I mean... I got that done. My A1C was 6.2. I literally cannot believe it. I almost want to walk back in there and say, you need to recheck this. This is not right. That's amazing. Like, so amazing. Thank you. Yeah, I'm really excited about it. I still am, like, trying to figure out if it's from the lows or if I genuinely was in range that much because it doesn't feel like it when I'm living through it every day, but I'm really happy about that. Anyways, this weekend I'm going hiking, so my goal is going to be to finish at least one hike without any low blood sugars. I don't know if this one will happen or not. I'm still getting used to, you know, what snacks to bring and what to do with my basal rate and every hike's different but I'm just gonna try my best and see what happens. I think that's a great goal. I think that your A1C of 6.2 is worth celebrating so you better enjoy yourself when you're hiking this weekend and personally what I found works really well is making sure that I have something like honestly I found peanut butter is the best thing which I know you're a fan of for treating lows but I have it before I leave on my like long walks And it just helps, even when you treat your lows, it sort of just helps things be more stable, I guess. That would be my word of advice for you. I do love peanut butter, so I am going to have to try that. I think it's a great idea. And seriously, like two tablespoons, you can just load it, like just nom it, nom, nom, nom. It's delicious. (laughs) I'll get one of those tubes and down the whole thing in a second. And so I think with that, we will finish our episode. And as you guys know, we are both getting used to some pretty new, crazily hectic schedules. And so I think you guys can expect to hear back from us in September. Until then, make sure to stay in touch on our Instagram at T1Talks. And we'll talk to you in September. Bye.